Perhaps no other book in the Old Testament matches the grandeur and majesty of Isaiah. Regarded by many as the theologian of the Old Testament, Isaiah's prophetic ministry lays a foundation for our understanding of all of redemptive history. He vividly describes man's depravity, the character of God, and the coming Messiah in new creation glories. Isaiah's ministry was to call Judah to repentance and to turn back to God, but also to prepare them for the coming judgment that would ruin their land. And while at the same time, while judgment and destruction was coming, he also preached the hope of restoration for telling of the new creation glories to come for the remnant of God's people. And as we just read a moment ago, who are those people? Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at his word. Now the key to unlocking all of Isaiah, as we'll see this morning, is to understand that Christ is the key. He is the fulfillment. John, for example, in his gospel tells us that in Isaiah's throne room vision, When he looked upon the Lord and saw the Lord in all of his holiness, he was beholding the glory of Christ. John tells us that in chapter 12 of his gospel. And Peter as well draws on the great, probably the most well-known passage in Isaiah on the suffering servant, showing that it is by Jesus' wounds, his blood, that we are healed. So Isaiah is is a magisterial book. It's a huge book as well. And of course, I'm not going to be able to give you every detail this morning, but as uh, is keeping with this series, I want to give you the big picture and the main message of each book of the Bible. And we're going to look at the main message of Isaiah today, the main theme, which is paradise regained. Paradise regained. You know, when you look at man's quest for happiness, we've thought about that recently as we've looked at Ecclesiastes, for example. Man's quest for happiness is really to undo the curse by their own means, by his own means. Now, there's nothing wrong, of course, with decorating your home or enjoying the creation that God has given to us. These are good things, enjoying your family, enjoying relationships, food, um, even hobbies. But none of those things can restore us to paradise. You know, that was the great message of Ecclesiastes. It's all vanity, Havel. It's a, it's a temporary breath and it's gone. We need something greater, a greater antidote, a greater cure to have paradise restored all that we have lost in the garden. And that's what Isaiah writes about in his mammoth book in 66 chapters. If you look on page 7 of your worship folder, I just want to point out a few things before we dive in to what we will focus on this morning. And the literary structure, we... Uh, I want to just point out something amazing that happened. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the Dead Sea Scrolls are something that were discovered in the early 20th century, 
which was an, a marvelous and amazing discovery that obliterated many liberal arguments for late dates for the writing of Scripture. A marvelous discovery. Uh, many scrolls have been found, and it's, it's worth your time to study and, and read about that. But one of the most important scrolls that were found in the Dead Sea was, is now called the Great Isaiah Scroll. It's, it's a complete uh, copy of the book of Isaiah. And just uh, this is not my point this morning, but on a, on a point of apologetics, to talk about the the, the fidelity of the word as it's been handed down to us when they went and looked back and compared our modern uh, transcripts to the great Isaiah scroll, it was with over 99% accuracy the same. But another very interesting thing that was discovered when they found the scroll was the, the, the gap of three lines between chapters 33 and 34. You can actually look this up online and look at the scroll. You don't have to read Hebrew to see it. You can go all the way through the whole scroll. There are absolutely no gra- uh, no gaps whatsoever. You know, today we have verses and chapters. Our, our, our translations, whether Norwegian or English or otherwise, give headers to paragraphs. There's none of that in the original manuscripts. It's just all sandwiched together. So there... There's no really accounting for a gap, but between Isaiah 33 and 34, there is a three-line gap, which has led a number of scholars to conclude that what Isaiah is, is, is um, this is a word you probably don't use every day, a bifid, B-I-F-I-D. It just means it's a work in two parts, like a two-volume work. And as they began to look with that, that break in the book in mind, they began to discover this amazing parallelism between the first volume and the second volume. And if you look at the brief outline that I've included, which comes from uh, Longman and Dillard, an introduction to the Old Testament, you see this this beautiful parallelism that goes from the A in volume 1 to part A in volume 2 and so forth. And it brought order to what many scholars were otherwise thinking was just a confused collection of prophetic statements. And uh, I have found this to be really a helpful way to understand how Isaiah is organized, and I commend it to you as well. Some other things that this shattered was the liberal notion that actually Isaiah didn't write much of what's in Isaiah. Actually, it was a second Isaiah or a third Isaiah, and that actually they wrote about Babylon afterwards because Isaiah possibly couldn't have known about Babylon. And yet this break destroys that argument, among other things. Of course, you can never win with liberals because Babylon is mentioned a number of times in the first volume too, and still wherever that is, they say, well, that was just an editorial entry later. You know, so you can't win. But I find it very compelling to see this beautiful symmetry in two parts in Isaiah, splitting the book literally in half from chapters 1 to 33 and 34 to 66. This morning, as I've said, we are not going to be able to look at all the details of this magisterial work. But I do want to give you the big picture, which I said is about paradise regained. And we're going to look at Isaiah in three parts this morning. 
we're going to look at Isaiah's message first, that man is wicked. Man is utterly wicked. His second message, judgment is coming. And then third, that paradise shall be regained. So that's how we are going to look at Isaiah this morning. Let's begin with his pronouncement that man is wicked. There is a lot of darkness in all the prophets, but Isaiah particularly dealing with the wickedness and treachery of even those who bore the name of God's people. And Isaiah has an indictment for Judah and for Israel as a whole. And chapter 1 begins with this indictment in chapter 1, verse 2, where Isaiah says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know my people. Does not know my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evil doers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Isaiah opens up speaking the words of the Lord to children who are estranged. It's like the child who the father no longer speaks to. Or the child who no longer acknowledge, more like the child who no longer acknowledges his parents. That is how Israel is to the Lord. And what made God despise them so much for their despising of him? We see later in chapter 10 that God is disgusted by their vain religiosity. By their vain religiosity. In other words, they're going about profaning the name of God with their lifestyle and what they're doing. And yet they're going about their religious duties in the temple. And it is disgusting in God's eyes. In chapter 1 verse 10, we read, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. So now he's calling Israel Sodom and Gomorrah. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure the iniquity of solemn assembly. Your new moon feasts and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And just imagine what was going on Wicked Israel living profanely and profusely before the Lord, yet going on and pretending that all is good by doing the religious ceremonies. 
Is that not what we see all the time when a complete pagan brings their child to be baptized to a church that they don't even go to, to a God that they don't even believe in? They're bringing utter condemnation on themselves, and it is a weary burden to God. Or how about those who practice man-made religious ceremonies and festivals and feasts? It is a weariness and a burden to God, a weary and burden to the Lord. Isaiah, well, I should say the Lord through Isaiah. When I say Isaiah, I'm talking about the Lord. Isaiah calls Judah a nation of whores. You know, I typed that in my notes in Microsoft uh, Word, and a little dashed line went underneath it and said, warning, this word might be offensive to your readers. I thought, well, that's interesting. It's meant to be offensive. In chapter 1, verse 21, the Lord through Isaiah says, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodge in her, but no murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Now, what were the core sins that caused the Lord to call the people who bore his name a nation of whores. I mean, you really have to kind of screw up, I think, to be called that. What were the core sins? I'm going to give you two that Isaiah identifies in his prophetic ministry. The number one core sin was Judah's idolatry. Judah's idolatry. In chapter 57, Isaiah says, But you draw near sons of the sorcerers, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks, Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed. And there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial for deserting me. You have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide. And you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. Israel is a loose woman who has made her bed wide and open to any. The Lord uses this, uh, this analogy of spiritual adultery or, uh, sorry, of adultery, to get at this greater reality of the spiritual adultery, of idolatry. So when Israel went up to the 
high places and made their bed, what they were doing was going up to sacrifice to the gods of the surrounding nations. This involved cultic prostitution, both male and female prostitution, which was thought to bring fertility to their families and to their land. So imagine your churchgoers on the, you know, on the weekend going on a hike up to the high mountain to sleep with the prostitute that somehow the gods of the, the, the so-called gods of the land would bring fertility. That's what the people who bore the name of God were doing regularly and zealously. Not only that, they were sacrificing their children to the god Molech. The original readers, of course, would know exactly what's going on here when they heard whether they wanted to or not Isaiah's pronouncement of judgment. They thought that by, again, this was more fertility religion. By sacrificing a child, they would live a blessed life. And I've made this comparison before. But is that not what abortion is today? It's sacrificing children so that you will live the good life that you want to live. Sacrifice to the God of Moloch is alive and well today. It is alive and well today. And it is predominant and celebrated in the so-called Christian nations of the world. One of the things that you realize as you study the Old Testament is that there ain't nothing new under the sun. When you get to the spiritual realities that every passage of the Old Testament points to, it hits us right between the eyes. There is nothing new under the sun. God was furious with Israel and Judah for whoring after the gods of the nations and seeking their means of of, uh, fertility and of their definition of the good life. That is course in number one. And this is addressed over and over again in Isaiah. I'm just giving you a few examples. The second core sin was injustice. The second core sin was injustice. And there's a lot of talk about injustice today. Uh, and there's been a lot, of, uh, a lot of talk about that in the news, in the media, cries for justice and things I think we should rightly be very concerned about as Christians. But the injustice that's often in view in the Old Testament is not just kind of broad injustice, say what's going on in Babylon or what's going on in Assyria or what's going on in Egypt, but the injustice that is going on within the people of God. The, the taking advantage of so-called brothers and sisters of the faith. And that infuriates the Lord. Of course, all injustice infuriates God and all injustice will be dealt with. But all the more the injustice that is done in the midst of the people of God. And I'll give you an example of that from Isaiah 59, where the Lord says through, uh, through Isaiah, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. 
They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adders' eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads in them knows peace. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. And he goes on and on. The sin and the deception and the callousness of Israel was so bad that the Lord says through Isaiah that the way of peace, they don't even know. They don't even know it. They have become ignorant by their own callousness. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. So again, we can kind of think of the mocking of the unrighteous when we think of the world and the church. But just, again, picture yourself in this time and place. This is the people who are named as the people of God, the children of Abraham. They're all claiming Abraham as their father. And they are mocking people who are actually fighting for justice. They're actually discouraging and harming those that seek the truth. And so God is bringing judgment on this wicked, visible people of God. But Isaiah doesn't only have uh, pronouncements of judgment for Judah and Israel, but also for the nations as well. We don't have time to look at it, but if you look at that outline that I've given to you, volume 1, section D, there is a huge section on oracles against foreign nations, against Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, Cush, Egypt, uh, Babylon again, and so on and so forth. Uh, God is not just a God who will judge his people. He will judge all peoples. And uh, that section is very damning on the surrounding nations. So I hope I've given you a taste of Isaiah's message that man is wicked, utterly wicked. And we'll see more of this with the other prophets as well, of course. And so God has brought a heavy indictment on Judah and Israel and also the surrounding nations. And because of that, we'll move now to the second point, the second part of Isaiah's message. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And again, where Israel's forewarned by this in chapter 2. Verse 10, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. 
For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. And I'll go down to verse, 19, uh, verse 18. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Imagine this picture that God is laying out for the people. He is going to reveal his glory. And the beauty of his glory will be a devastation to the wicked. These are looks that will kill. He will reveal his splendor and his majesty. And people will hide in terror. Paul picks up that theme as well of the people of God waiting for the glory of Christ to be revealed when he will judge their enemies. The day of glory is a day of joy for the people of God, but of terror for the wicked. And this judgment is coming on Israel and Judah. We read in chapter 10, verse 1, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this his anger has now turned away and his hand is stretched out still. But, Isaiah is writing here to warn Israel and Judah of God's coming judgment. They are not going to be safe from what is about to happen. When he reveals his splendor and majesty, it means they're getting vomited out of the land. And the Lord wiped out the northern tribes through the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. And they're carried off with fish hooks in their mouth, hands lopped off, all sorts of horrible punishments. I've said before, but the the king of Assyria had his palace wallpapered with the skins of his victims. Is awful and horrendous. And the Lord used that wicked empire to punish his whoring people. But it wasn't just the northern ten tribes. In 586, of which Isaiah predicts beforehand, Babylon comes and wipes out Judah, the southern kingdom as well, in 586. And they are wiped out and no more for the time being. And Babylon was just as ruthless, if not more, than Assyria. And God gave rest to the land for 70 years. And just in case you're wondering if God really did use Assyria, 
We read in chapter 10, verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. So the Lord is calling Assyria the rod of my anger. But Assyria is going to get it too. He goes on. Against a godless nation, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and tread down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations. So Assyria is thinking, I'm doing all of this. But then we go on in in verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful looks in his eyes. And he's going to wipe them out as well. And we could go on, but I don't have time to give you the... You can read chapter 21 about God's punishment on Babylon as well, who God will use to punish Judah also. What we see in Isaiah is a lot of temporal punishments. And I want to pause here to just talk about how to read the prophets for a moment. The prophets are writing to their time. They really are the forerunners of preachers today in the sense that they are taking God's revealed word and preaching it to the people of God, calling them to repent and to get in line. And that's what every preacher should do. Trust in God, hope in him, walk, turn away from iniquity. And in the prophet's day, they were calling God's people to repent before... Assyria came and wiped them out before a Babylon came and took them into exile. But they weren't merely speaking to their time. God also spoke through the prophets to speak about ultimate things. And the New Testament is very clear on that. So I will argue in the greater witness of Scripture, not only do we learn from Isaiah that judgment was going to come and did come for Israel and for Judah. But judgment is coming on the whole world as well. And we read in Revelation 18, a citation from Isaiah, where we read, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And they threw dust on their heads uh, this is writing of the merchants, the worldly merchants in Revelation eighteen nineteen, And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has become laid waste. So John in Revelation is citing from Isaiah to show the greater reality that the whole world is going to be 
judged. There is no escaping it. There is no escaping it whatsoever. But for God's people, for God's people, we can rejoice. For God has given judgment against our enemies. And that takes us to the third and final point. That paradise shall be regained. Again, in this last section, we're going to see both a temporal as well as an ultimate or eternal fulfillment to the words of Isaiah. And again, uh, just as the Lord used a wicked pagan to punish his people, God also used a wicked pagan king to deliver his people. And in chapter 45, we learn about the emperor Cyrus, the emperor of the Medo-Persian Empire. In chapter 45, we read, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. So the Lord picks this pagan emperor to wipe out Babylon, is Judah's captor, and says, I'm going to make him prosperous. I'm going to make his highway straight. In other words, I'm going to make Cyrus's road smooth and easy to conquer and take over, and I'm going to use him to free my people. And the Lord did grant temporal deliverance to the exiles. We read about this fulfillment in Ezra 1, where Cyrus ushers a decree to call Judah to go back and rebuild the temple. And he gives them the wealth of his of his own, you know, baked you know, of his own deposits, of his own storehouses. Take the gold, take all the gold and the silver that you need to furnish and offer sacrifice to Yahweh. Of course, Cyrus was thinking, I just want to appease the local God. But the Lord used a wicked pagan for greater ends. But of course we know that this was temporal. Israel's going to get punished again because They didn't do any better the second time. And we're going to see that, especially as we get into the minor prophets. They didn't do any better when they got a second chance. They went down the same old path once again. And that's going to lead us to Christ. We learn in Isaiah that spiritual restoration is far more important than temporal deliverance. And this is where we come to the great theme of the servant of the Lord. Some of the most well-known passages in Isaiah deal with the servant of the Lord. And the way that we will answer our deepest need in the world is to find spiritual reunion with our Father in heaven. And that's going to come through the suffering servant. We read, for example, in Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. In 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Verse 11, the same chapter. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here we see both the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ. And Peter and Luke and others pick up on this theme. For example, in the book of Acts, we're told about the Ethiopian eunuch who is reading the Isaiah scroll, but doesn't know what it means. But he's searching for God. And Philip, one of the first deacons of the church, comes by and sees him and says, well, let me explain this to you. We read in Acts 8, as Luke writes, Acts 8.31, The Ethiopian eunuch invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. That's a citation from Isaiah 53.7 and 8. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the Old Testament is not for today. That the Old Testament is someone else's news. The New Testament is the very definition and hermeneutical guide for what the Old Testament really means. And Christ is the center of the Old Testament. He's the key that unlocks everything And the eunuch wants to know, who is this Messiah that's going to come? Because there are many pretended Messiahs in this period of time. People claiming to be the one. And the eunuch wants to know. And Philip, opening his mouth, begins with this scripture, Isaiah 53, to preach the good news about Jesus. We read the Old Testament Because it is the good news about Christ. That is what it is. Theologians have often called the Old Testament Christ concealed and the New Testament Christ revealed. And now, because we have the ability to read the New Testament, we can go back and read the Old Testament and understand its true message, which is all about Christ. I was telling someone when I, I told him about this series we're doing, you know, what, what's the big message of the Old Testament? I said it's probably that man is utterly and wickedly depraved and totally helpless. And there's hints of grace sprinkled in along the way. 
which is the hope of Christ through the line of David that goes back to the offspring of Abraham and, and so forth, to the, the promised offspring of Eve even who had crushed the head of the serpent in Genesis 3. But time and time again, we're like, can man do it? Can man do it? Nope. Can they do it? Can they do it? Nope. What if they have a king? Will that help? Yeah, it looks great. Solomon, wisest person in the world, will that help? Nope. Time and time again, total depravity. We can't do it, friends. We need Christ. Christ. And Christ is at the heart of the Old Testament. And if we want to preach the good news, friends, we can preach the gospel from the Old Testament, even as Philip did in Acts chapter 8. Peter also cites this chapter when he talks about the glories of Jesus as our priest. He committed no sin, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2.22. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And by this healing that we get from Christ, it's not only a healing and a forgiveness of sins, but it's also going to be a restoration of paradise lost. If you look again briefly on page 7 of the outline, that first volume has a very local and temporal focus to it very about what's going to happen with this immediate judgment and this more immediate deliverance. And the second volume has that too, but volume two turns God's judgment and salvation to a universal scope. And it ends with this in chapters 60 to 66, this universal judgment as well as deliverance. And remember in Isaiah 2, Maybe you remember I read about the wicked entering in the rock, hiding in the dust before the terror of the Lord. They're hiding in caves. And this is exactly what John picks up in the book of Revelation in chapter 6 of Revelation when he talks about the people hiding from the wrath of the Lamb. So in Jesus' first coming, he came to deal with sin. In his second coming, he's dealing to rid the world of wickedness and deliver the people of God, his Jew and Gentile church. We read in Revelation 6.15, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? So Jesus is coming again as the fulfillment of Isaiah 60 through 66 to bring his wrath and to rid the world of evil. But he is also coming to bring the new creation. And in Isaiah 65, we read, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. That's Isaiah 65. And John picks this up in Revelation 21, when he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And he was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So we have learned about man being wicked, judgment coming, paradise shall be regained. The last question is, who shall get in? It's really important that we understand that there is a distinction between the visible people of God and the hidden or invisible people of God. The people of God has always been a mixed community. In the days of Israel, Abraham's offspring, not everybody, as Jesus tells us, who is Abraham's offspring, is a child of Abraham. There, there is a visible community, so much of it of which is wicked. And Jesus describes this in, in places like uh, Matthew 13, where there's both the, the weeds sown among the wheat. And at the judgment, the weeds are going to be removed. And the visible people of God have plenty of people that are wicked, that are not the people of God. And the same is true in the church. The church is a mixed people too. There are many people in church history who have called themselves Christian who were utterly wicked, who were false, who were not true believers. So the question then is, who shall get in? So going to church, doing the rituals, which sometimes is a burden to God if you're wicked. It's a burden to Him. It's something you should do if you love God. But if you're just putting on pretenses, it is an abomination in His sight. Who's the one who will get in? Isaiah's prophetic ministry in Isaiah 66 closes with these words, but this is the one to whom I will look, Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. The one who will get in to enjoy the paradise restored, regained, renewed will be the one who trembles at God's word. On the day of Pentecost, when the men of Israel heard Peter preach and they were cut to the heart, they, they said to Peter, what, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said in Acts 2, 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. If you want to be saved, must be repent. You must repent and be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You must tremble at his word, being people that strive to live by the word of God. That is the true test of a true Christian and a false Christian. If you start bringing scripture up, it will sort people out really quickly. If you've not read The Pilgrim's Progress, I would encourage you to read that. John Bunyan, the Puritan's famous work, and he talks about talkative, who likes to talk about any subject, theology or otherwise. But when Christian, the, the hero in the story, uh, points uh, talkative to his own sins, he runs away. He runs away. 
we want to enter into the gates of glory, we must tremble at the word of God, putting our hope in Jesus and striving to live by him. We are not saved by our works, but the fruit of our works do bear manifest that God has saved us and that the Spirit is at work in us. So let me say that again. Our works do not save us, but they do bear witness to our salvation. Because when God gives us his Spirit, we bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Of course, it's a fight. We're, we're constantly needing to fight with the old man to put that off. We wrestle with sin, but we're wrestling with it. We're not content in it. And that's the difference. We are fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And friends, this promise is not just for the Jews. This promise is for Gentiles like you and me as well. And that's what ticked off the visible people of God so badly in Jesus' day. When Jesus went in the synagogue, everybody loved Jesus while he was saying good things about him. He's the Messiah. He's healing us. This is the one. As soon as and then, he, well, and then he opens the scroll of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Which, by the way, is this church age between his first and second comings. The year of the Lord's favor. But when they started saying, isn't this, isn't this guy from our town? Isn't this so-and-so's son? Isn't, isn't he the carpenter? Wasn't he a carpenter? Jesus chastises them and says, well, wasn't it true that in, in the, the days of the famine of old that only the, the widow was saved or the lepers in the days of old that it was only Naaman, the Syrian army commander, that was healed and they got ticked off and they wanted to kill Jesus. So friends, we're going to draw wrath, not just from the world, but we're going to draw wrath from the church too. And there's many of people in the pretended name of Christ who hate what we do, preaching the word. All of it. Even the parts the culture hates. But those who tremble at the word of God, Jew and Gentile, will get in. I close with these words from Isaiah and then Revelation For those who tremble at his word, we read in Isaiah 66, the last words of the book, and the redeemed shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fires shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. In Revelation 21, 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I exhort you, brothers and sisters, to be humble and contrite. Tremble at the word of God and look to the suffering servant for the healing and forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray.